Welcome to Worth Their Weight in Gold and Episode 2 with Chris Dodd, high jump champion who was on target to compete at the Olympic Games. His PB, 2 metres 23. He narrowly missed 2 metres 27. He was the New South Wales Open champion and there's no doubt he would have been jumping over 2 metres 30, which is just staggering. Grab a tape measure and see just how high that is. Like Chris said in Episode 1, it's like trying to jump over your lounge room ceiling. If he did clear 2 metres 30, he'd be in contention at all the major championships around the world. But in 2015, the Olympic dream was over. If you missed Episode 1, the family car had a faulty handbrake. It rolls down the driveway and traps Chris and his daughter Ella. Eventually, Ella is freed unscathed, which is just a miracle. But then Chris is trapped and being treated by paramedics, and it's clear he's in a serious condition. That's where we start episode two. So Chris has got a broken pelvis, which sounds excruciating, but there's more and more problems unfolding before he's airlifted to Royal North Shore Hospital. So Chris, what were the extent of the injuries? Yeah, so I, um, I had the sheared urethra. I fractured my pelvis in two places as well. I also suffered a pressure wound from where the car was sitting on my leg. Um, so that was just on the side of my foot near my heel. And it just looked like a blister at first. And then the skin died away and a giant hole basically opened up. It took about five months to heal. Um, and even now there's still a big scab on and wound on the heel. Um, and there's no, there's no um, feeling around that part. I also suffered fractures to L5, I think, and S1 um, and L4. The S1's the sacrum, so it's just near the, the tailbone. So it was all lower back. Um, so there was fractures to three vertebrae. And then um, I also had a fracture to my greater trochanter, which is like near the hip. It's part of the femur, like a ball that sort of sits out. But that's something I didn't even – I never got told about that until – I was doing the test trying to get out of hospital and I said, why do I need to do these tests? And they said, oh, because we can't let you out until, you know, you can navigate stairs on crutches because of your fracture and your graded trochanter. And I was like, what? Where's that? What's what's that? So there was probably a, a few other injuries that I, I wasn't made aware of at the time as well. But um, the main ones that they were worried about were the, the vertebrae in the back um, and the pressure sore on the foot. Yeah, our last guest, Terry Chigwidden, was in Royal North Shore Hospital for just a week, lucky to walk away after a near-death experience when he was out cycling for an Ironman triathlon, hit by a young driver, but you're there for a month. Yeah, yeah, just under a month I was there, and um, I was pushing to get out. I was desperate to get out, to the point where... <laughs> like just, the Great Escape. Yeah, I was, I, 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 re I was able to push it forward by quite a number of days, just because I was... I was so determined to get out of there. I probably did leave a little bit too early um, and I realised that, you know, the afternoon I got home. But um, I just I just wanted to get out. It was beautiful there, don't get me wrong. I was really lucky. I had a room to myself. But, you know, because of the injuries, I was sitting in a hospital bed um, for the first, I think, two and a half weeks. I wasn't allowed to sit up at all. Um, I think they got me on a, on a maybe a 15-degree incline um, but basically, I was lying flat on my back for two weeks straight, unable to move. Um, and because of the injury to my foot, it had to be propped up because it couldn't rest on the bed. So, you know, I'm lying on my back with my foot on two pillows 
And, you know, for someone that was so active training, you know, five, six days a week, it just, it was really difficult. <laughs> it was, I just wanted to get out. So around this time, it probably dawns on you that the Olympic dream is over. How did that feel? Yeah, it, it's, it wasn't, it's not as bad as what I think a lot of people would expect. And again, a vivid memory from that accident is the helicopter ride. It wasn't long, but I remember being in the helicopter and, you know, I was left alone. And that was the first time since the accident happened, you know, so what, two hours that I didn't have to speak to anyone. I had my headphones on for the helicopter and everything. And I remember just sitting there in my own thoughts thinking, I'm okay. Like if I never high jump again, I'm fine with that because I can move my legs and all that was all I was thinking was as long as I can play in the backyard with my kids I don't care what I have to sacrifice for that so that was I was really fortunate that that was you know the way that my mind was able to go down the path that my mind was able to go down because it really helped when I was in hospital as well like I was able to stay really positive I don't think I think I might have had you know one tough night where I couldn't sleep and the pain was excruciating in hospital but other than that everything else my mindset I was really fortunate that, you know, I defaulted to something that was really positive and I looked on the bright side of things like high jump and and my career in athletics. I thought I've achieved a lot. I've been a lot of places. I've met some amazing people. I've done so much good um, out of that career. If I don't do it again, I'm okay with that. I just want to be able to kick a footy with my kids or, you know, kick a soccer ball, run around and, and wrestle them, you know, that and that that was all I cared about. So it really helped with that sort of, that problem I guess. Yeah, absolutely. In the end, is your PB 224 and you narrowly missed 227 and you're one of the best in Australia? Yeah, 223, unfortunately. <laughs> you're giving me an extra <laughs> centimetre, but um, yeah, in the end. Well, let's not forget it was around about a decade ago when you were at your best. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, 2014 was probably one of my best years. And I guess that was the frustrating thing is, you know, I trained the morning of the accident and I trained with Matt and I had a really good training session. And, um, you know, I think I was, I was doing something like, um, like single legs, um, squats kind of thing. Uh, and I had about 140 kilos on a Smith machine. So it was sort of supported, but you know, it was a, a hefty weight. It was really like a lot of weight. And Matt and I were, you know, quite excited because we were having the conversation like this season's going to be a good one. Like we're looking really strong. The, the accident happened in October. Like, our jumping season was just about to start and, um, you know, I just came off the best season I've ever had where I jumped 223. I was absolutely kicking goals in all forms of training, in weights, in plyometrics, in, in my track sessions. I was just everything. I was just smashing all my PBs. So, you know, we were thinking this is going to be a bit of a breakthrough season. So, yeah, there is that sense of what could have been, I guess. But, again you can't afford to, to think about that because you're only going to end up in a bad space, I think. What about uh, philosophically, you hear people say everything happens for a reason. Mm. Have you ever tried to process that? Yeah, and, and that's absolutely something that I've always thought as well. You know, I always think that, you know, significant events do happen for a certain reason. It's funny because at the time, I was actually in the process of, of joining the fire brigade um, and going through a complete different career change. You know, I was getting a bit disillusioned with teaching, not being able to get a permanent job. I guess I was looking at following in my father's footsteps into the fire brigade and I'd gone through all the processes. Um, I went through all the tests and I had one final test to go through and that was their medical. 
their final medical and um, it fell on the day of one of my surgeries, which was an eight-hour surgery. And um, I rang them and I said, I can't do this. I can't do this medical. I've got a surgery on that day. And they're like, that's okay. We can reschedule. Um, the only available time is a week later. And I said, <laughs> I'm bedridden for two weeks. And so, you know, it was, again, it was, all right, well, that's that's the door closed. But, you know, my the way I looked at it was obviously that wasn't meant to be for me. And I think, you know, six, 12 months later, I had a permanent job in teaching and I, I'm loving what I do. So again, it's, you know, everything does happen for a reason. And that's obviously one of them. You know, I spoke to your dad for MBN TV. Not sure if you've ever seen the interview, but uh, he cried when he spoke about what unfolded. Mm. It moved him that much. Yeah, I guess being a, being a fireman, he, he's probably used to, you know, turning up and, and dealing with those situations and I, I reckon probably getting that phone call you know it probably opened up its own form of trauma for him because he wouldn't have known what he was walking into you know the phone call would have just been there's been an accident Chris has been run over and you know he, he's got a wealth of experience of, of accidents that go wrong and what can happen so I guess it was quite traumatic for him because it would have caused you know a, a bit of heartache for him thinking back to you know all his experiences he was a fireman for 33 years so uh, he would have seen a lot in that time. So, um, yeah, it definitely would have been tough for him. Yeah, you wonder how they switch off mentally. Uh, that's what I want to ask you about now. What about post-traumatic stress disorder for you? I don't – yeah, it, I feel like I probably haven't um, – I, I got away pretty lucky, I think. You know, there was a lot of interest when the accident happened and everything was quite vivid when it happened as well. So at that point in time, again, I said I was in – quite a positive mindset considering what I was going through but my belief was I have to stay positive otherwise this is going to be really tough you know the things I had to do and the things I had to go through if I wasn't positive then I knew that that's what I would be dealing with so I was quite lucky that you know I was able to deal with it quite positively at that time I think in hindsight you know looking back now as well I probably should have seen someone about it and talked it through a little bit more because I think as the years have gone on, it's probably, it is getting more difficult to think about back about it. Maybe it's because, you know, my kids are getting older and I'm getting a bit more soft, but yeah, it is, it's one of those things where it, it was probably harder for the people around me. I know that Kel took it quite hard. It was quite hard for her to deal with. She was left to deal with a massive burden. You know, I was just sitting at in the hospital bed with my feet up watching movies basically all day. Um, she had to deal with everything. She had to deal with insurance companies. Yeah, she had to deal with the kids. She had to deal with the work and you know everything that was going on and trying to keep our life semi-normal for our children because they were young. So I think it was tough for her and tough for my parents, obviously as well. But uh, yeah, even now, Kel won't let me park on any sort of incline towards any houses or anything. Even at my parents' house, if it has to be on a flat surface. Yeah. As we know, she is a tower of strength. Yeah, you're a very lucky man. Chris, your story brought out the best in the Central Coast community because they really rallied around you. And I, I remember they helped rebuild your house. And wasn't there like a front yard blitz? There there was, yeah. I was, yeah, I was even now trying to think back to the amount of support I got. I, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's not... It's not embarrassing, but um, I was very humbled. I, I don't feel like I was worthy of the support that I got at times <laughs> because, yeah, I was so fortunate. I had a lot of people in my corner. I had a couple of kids at school that organised like a massive fundraiser and they raised a, you know, some money for me to help with some of the, 
you know, the physiotherapy and everything after. I had a physiotherapy um, company out at West Gosford offer to give me some physio after I got out of hospital. The Kyle and Jackie O show, they, they organised uh, a little blitz out the front. Yeah, like, like you said, they, um, they installed like a barricade at the bottom of the, um, at the driveway. So in case it ever happened again, which <laughs> Kel would never let anyone park in that driveway ever again. Hey, I never realised. It was Kyle and Jackie O. It was. It was. Yeah, how yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. She obviously saw some segment and, and entered it. And, and that was one of the prizes. Um, Random act of kindness. Yeah, a, a bit like that. But, yeah, and um, they've got over a million listeners. So Yeah, it was huge. Would yeah. have resonated with so many people. There was And, and the, the clip's still uh, circulating on Facebook every now and then. I still get tagged in it. I, don't, I tend not to watch it anymore because, I, like I said, I, I don't like revisiting it as much now. But uh, it's still getting around. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the support I got was incredible. Like, there's so many people I could thank in that time for you know, the help that I got. Um, I was incredibly fortunate. And again, it just was one of those things where it took one thing that we could have stressed about off our shoulders um, and it made dealing with the process so much easier. Hey, you mentioned about the high school. We've been talking about mental health and I bumped into the new principal at your high school, Paul Broadbent. Fantastic guy, great athlete. And he said he tries to talk to some of the teachers about students with a hidden backpack. He said the philosophy behind that is, you never know what they're bringing to school with them, what's happening in their home life. And I thought that is so refreshing in this day and age that he said he tries to remind teachers not to be too hard on the kids. Now, you'd hear a lot of people say that we're not hard enough, but you never know what they're dealing with at home. Yeah, absolutely. And he's right in that sense. You know, there's, there's a fair bit of research in the impact of trauma on behaviour and um, exactly like that, the hidden backpack, you don't know what what kids are carrying. There's a lot going on in, in children's lives outside of school. In my role at school, I'm a year advisor, which means that I, I take care of one of the year groups and um, we have regular welfare meetings. And to see and hear some of the things that some of these kids are going through, it just blows your mind. Um, it's really sad. So it can have a big impact on their everyday lives. And you know sometimes just the fact that they're at school is a big achievement. I guess having that empathy and understanding where they're coming from, you know, it really does make a difference for these kids as well because you don't have to talk about what their issue is, but just showing them that you've got that understanding and have a bit of patience as well can make a lot of difference. Yeah, I love this generation of kids. Uh, I do some work on public speaking with some of the local high schools and I feel like they're really empathetic. They're all looking out for each other. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you're, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. They're um, a lot more empathetic than previous generations, that's for sure. A lot more understanding and accepting as well. Tolerant. Yeah, very tolerant. So mm. I think it's it's a good time to be you know, a kid that might be a bit different at a school. Kids um, in the past that might have been singled out or, or treated harshly, they just they don't, they don't get bothered at all. Um, kids are a lot more understanding and accepting, you know, there's a lot of kids that are, you know, even on the spectrum and they might operate slightly differently to everyone else. And it's not a generation that we have now that really singles them out and makes fun of them. They are understanding, you know, they're accepting. And if someone isn't, then the kids are quick to pull them up on it and say, leave them alone. Yeah, well said. Hey, we've got to circle back to high jump because some of the people that you competed with, uh, your old coach, Matt Horsnall, one of his star athletes, Nicola McDermott, 
you've watched them all compete at the Olympics. Some of them have won Olympic medals, which is just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's crazy to think, you know, obviously like speaking before and talking about, you know, you have to be towards your late 20s or 30s to really peak as an athlete. The last few years I've seen those athletes that I competed with achieve on the on the international scale and you know Brandon Stark was very unlucky not to get a medal at the the previous Olympics. I think he would have won a medal with his jump in basically the last five Olympic games. So he was really unfortunate and so I'm quite proud that, you know, I think we've got a pretty, an even record. It might be four wins each, four losses, a head-to-head record. So, Are you the same stature? Yeah, we're, a bit, we're the same height. I've got a bit more kilos on him. He's a bit thinner than I was as a high jumper. He's more a speed jumper. I was more a power jumper. But, um, yeah, like, it, it's great. It's great to see him achieving what he's achieving. There's another a New Zealand high jumper, Hamish Kerr, that I've jumped against as well. And he was just sort of, I guess, starting out when I jumped against him. Uh, I like to think that I taught him what he knows, but um, you know he was amazing at the the previous Olympics as well, and he was really unlucky. He jumped over two thirty, um, which is just phenomenal. He's absolutely crushing it at the moment. And then obviously you've got Nicola, who is just you know, she's just setting the bar when it comes to high jump in Australia, um, and also on and off track. Yeah, just a comp- a really completely different athlete. You know, it's refreshing to see you know, her attitude and her mindset towards being an athlete as well. And that's obviously where a lot of her success comes from as well. She's a great role model for a lot of people. But she'd look up to you. I guess, yeah, maybe. She, I mean, I was I was a few years older than her and, and, you know, she was very young when she started with us. 11. Yeah, 11, yeah. And, you know, I've told this story before and I love t- telling it because it just shows you what an eye Matt has for athletes. But... um I remember turning up for training one day and I even remember where on the track we were, you know, we're down by the long jump pits and he said, we've got this girl, Nicola, coming back. He's like, I don't know if you remember her. She trained with us a couple of times a few months ago. He's like, man, you should see her now. She's had a crow spurt. She is huge for her age. And his words were, if we can get her to stick with it, she will, she will be, she'll break the Australian record. He said, she will kill it. He said she's a bit unco at the moment, but he's like, if we can get rid of that and she sticks with it, I reckon this girl will go to the Olympics for sure. Yeah, yeah, and she becomes so Nicola McDermott slash Nicola Oleschlagers. Yes. First female to clear two metres, wins a medal in Tokyo, and fifth at the last World Championships, although she went in with some injuries, and then we saw Eleanor Patterson win the World Championship in Eugene, Oregon. So, so exciting. You've got a special place in history, particularly here on the Central Coast. You are the number one scholarship holder with a foundation that's handed out over 300,000 in sporting scholarships and has changed the lives of many local athletes. Yeah, being the number one scholarship holder for the Danica Clark Foundation is something that I still hold so dear to my heart. It's um, honestly one of my proudest achievements, I think. Um, and to see the quality and calibre of athletes that this foundation has supported is just mind-boggling. You know, the efforts of, of Tony and Kerry to have gone what they've gone through and then create this foundation that has created so much good um, on the Central Coast is, is just phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, being involved in that, in that foundation is something that I, I really cherish and I'm very proud to be the number one scholarship holder. And you're number one because you were close friends with Danika? 
Yeah, at the time um, I trained with Danica. So she was in, in my same sprinting group and she was a great athlete. You know, I still remember the way she ran. She still ran like a beach sprinter on the track, but she had so much talent. Um, I've seen footage where she annihilates the opposition at such a young age. Like, I'm talking like just light years ahead. Yeah, like, I, you know, in a, in a 100 or 200 metre race, it wouldn't be out of the question to see her win by 20 metres. She just had so much power and then the speed to back it up as well. She was, yeah, she was a phenomenal athlete. Final question for you. Who do you feel is worth their weight in gold? I, I think I've made it quite clear through the podcast that um, if I was to say anyone is worth their weight in gold, it would have to be Matthew Horsnell. What he's done, not just for me, not for Nicola, but for, for so many athletes on the Central Coast and around New South Wales is phenomenal. Um, he's so unselfish. He puts everyone first. Like I said, I don't have enough adjectives to describe how great a man he is. So I think Matthew Horsnell is definitely worth his weight in gold. Great to see you, mate. All the best to you and the family. Uh, three beautiful girls and Kelly. Best wishes. You're number one with Danica Clark Foundation. Number four on Worth Their Weight in Gold. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. That is part two with Chris Dodd on Worth Their Weight in Gold. And there's no doubt after hearing about 2015, Chris is the guy you want in a crisis. He's absolutely the Iceman. And I really love that he spoke about the power of positive thoughts when he was going through rehab. I think the other moral of the story is you don't actually have to go to the Olympics to be a champion or a hero to everyone around you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Coming up soon, an Australian surf life-saving champion who began a program for kids with disabilities to enjoy the beach. And there's a senior citizen, and I say that with all due respect, who's devoted her entire life to helping kids in need on the Central Coast. Don't forget, if you know someone worth their weight in gold, we want to hear about it via the website or you can send us a direct message. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll catch you again soon on Worth Their Weight in Gold.